there's going to be change and it's going to continue to change. There are technologies that are on the horizon that will eventually become our problem. As long as new technologies are introduced, there's going to be a new novel way to break in and a new way that we need to protect. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. I'm excited to continue our Confessions of a CISO series, where we're featuring awesome guests sharing personal and professional career highlights in a safe space. Today, I am joined by the Chief Information Security Officer at Epic. Jerry Beeson is responsible for ensuring the security of the company's digital assets, as well as transforming the Epic cybersecurity program into a world-class industry leader. He has spent his career building industry-leading cybersecurity programs to protect some of the nation's most sensitive assets. Jarek, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've been a listener of the podcast and happy to be part of it. Ah, that's so cool. Um, I love that. And I also understand that you host a podcast too. Tell me about Cyberside Chats. Sure. So Cyberside Chats is our attempt to bridge the gap between the legal and cyber industries. Uh, oftentimes you talk to cyber people and they don't understand the legal side of things. You talk to legal people, they don't understand the cyber side of things, but they really need to go hand in hand. And uh, we're looking to address that gap with our show. That is really cool. So brief side note, my father was an attorney. A bunch of my best friends are attorneys. Um, if I had followed sort of a typical path um, for my family, I might have been an attorney. Um, and cybersecurity, at least in my experience, and then watching my friends who became attorneys, like, it is different. I would love to hear your perspective on sort of how do lawyers and cybersecurity people think differently and why? That's a great question. And, and I'll say this, if you were going to be an attorney, you would have still found your way over to the dark side. Like <laughs> it's the hottest area in, in, uh, in the legal side of things right now. But the, the biggest difference between cybersecurity professionals and legal professionals are that cybersecurity professionals are taught to think in risk, and there is a spectrum of risk. But on the legal side of things, it's usually very black and white. You're either passing the law or you're against the law or you're either compliant or you're not compliant and the the conversation usually breaks down when cyber people start talking about risk and legal teams don't really give much room for for that type of conversation yeah super interesting i mean practically speaking you know i observe that a lot of my attorney friends they do like a lot of reading so much reading, so much reading, um, and also a ton of writing. And, you know, not to, uh, so what I'm about to say is intended as like a friendly, playful joke. Um, I feel like attorneys are kind of boring, but that cybersecurity is like endlessly interesting, but I'm also naturally uh, really biased. So there's that. What about, um, what about if, if I have these three topics, cybersecurity, privacy and law, you know, what is there to be said about those three domains? You know what, we, we don't realize that technology intersects with every single one of those. 
right? Mm -hmm. So let's use digital transformation as the buzzword that everybody's using, especially after you know COVID and the pandemic. From a digital transformation perspective on the cybersecurity side, we're trying to protect our users, we're trying to protect our hybrid workforce, we're trying to make sure that you know things are available, but available in a secure way in a ubiquitous manner. And then if we go over to the privacy side of things, well, now we have data that is no longer behind our walls, but we still have the privacy implications of ensuring that we can align with GDPR or align with CCPA and so forth. But now I can't just do it in my data center. I need to depend on my cloud providers to, to do their part. Or if you look at it from a, a legal perspective, now when I want to do things like legal hold or when I want to uh, do things like e-discovery, I now have to take a completely different approach because once again, I don't necessarily have some of the legacy ways of accessing that data and managing that data. So one thing all has a different perspective and different things need to be done to align with whatever it is uh, that you know people are trying to accomplish. Very cool. I think this is a super interesting intersection of domains. Um, I want to kind of step over to the right. That's a weird. That's a weird thing to say, but um, yeah, I just want to talk about an adjacent topic, which is you are a CISO. What are your favorite and your least favorite things about the job? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> my favorite part about the job is. I get to directly impact a number of people in my organization and outside of my organization. Having the title CISO will get people's ear. So I find a platform on LinkedIn that I did not necessarily have before I was a CISO. I also like that I get to leave my fingerprint and hopefully an indelible mark on every organization um, that, I, that I work for. The, the part that I dislike the most about being a CISO is there is this perception that you are the chief information scapegoat officer as well, right? And that if you have really uh, one really bad day, one really bad attack, that it could in theory impact the rest of your career. A lot of people don't want the job because they don't want that heat. Um, but I don't know, I, I kind of run to the fire instead of away from it. Yeah, beautifully said. I mean, what I take away from that is that you are an individual who is sort of obsessed with making an impact. Uh, and I think that you can only really do that if you're willing to get close. Uh, very cool. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Jarek, tell me about yourself as a young person and your decision to study computer networking. Yeah, I, as a kid, I was a geek before being a geek was cool. Uh, I have the same glasses on that I had back when I was, you know, in the third and fourth grade. Yes, um, I, I love that. <laughs> computers and glasses kind of go together, I guess, at least they used to. Um, the, the story that I always tell is I was uh, downstairs. My dad had purchased um, a computer, a couple computers that he brought home from, from his um, job. They were throwing them out. We had a game called Duke Nukem, which was... I don't know, PG-13, we'll say. And there were some choice words that the guy would use. So my dad wouldn't let me play it when he wasn't around. So the computer was upstairs and my bedroom was downstairs. And I wanted to connect to my computer upstairs from downstairs. And playing around with a few things, I discovered the world of networking and I was able to connect to my computer downstairs to upstairs. A light bulb went off. I started wondering what else can I connect to? Um, got into a little bit of trouble, but long story short, it led me to a job and a career in security. Love it. 
That is very cool. Um, and you have had a bunch of different roles. So you have done data administration, you've done network security, you've you've worked in private sector, you've worked in like what I'll call pseudo public sector, uh, you've worked for like big four consulting, uh, you're on all these boards, you've had like a bunch of different roles. And I wonder if you'd like walk us through your career and tell us a little bit about what it was like to be uh, in those different types of roles. Sure. So I have held just about every role in cybersecurity at this point. Uh, I was an engineer analyst early in my career in the casino industry. And even when I first started working for the government, and one of the things I liked about that role is I got to really work hands-on with the technologies that were available at the time. Uh, I can only imagine what it'd be like to be an engineer now, uh, given the toys that they get to play with. Ours were nowhere near as robust and feature-rich. Um, after that, I moved over to a mid-level management and ultimately senior management, working for the government, uh, Lockheed Martin in particular. And I was the CISO at the time, it was called Cybersecurity Program Manager, but effectively the person at the top of the, I guess, the food chain when it comes to cybersecurity for a contract with the Department of Energy, specifically the National Nuclear Security Administration, which is a fancy way of saying I was responsible for protecting the nation's nuclear secrets. Yeah, that's like kind of a big deal. I feel like that's a big deal. <laughs> uh, it was specifically in the Nevada uh, location, which is where they tested the first atom bomb and they did a few other things. So yeah, that was pretty cool. I, I got cool. to say that I worked for you know the government. I even got to secure a robot at one point in time. So that was cool. Um, after that, I moved over to a product company, RSA, which was the, the largest product company at the time. And I got to lead professional services um, first in their governance risk and compliance group. Some people know it as Archer. Um, and then I moved over to their advanced SOC group. Some people know it as NetWitness. And my job wasn't to deploy the technology, but to build the programs around the technology because that's what made the technology sticky. Uh, from there, I ended up moving on to management consulting at Deloitte where I did pretty much everything uh, from cloud security to SOCs. And what I loved most about that was I got direct C-level exposure. I got to better understand the problems of, of a C-level person. But more importantly, I realized they're just human. CISOs and CEOs and CFOs were mythical creatures to me when you know you don't get to see them and talk to them. But then you walk in the room and they're complaining about their kids just like you are. You're like, okay, so we are all putting our pants on the same way. And it made it feel tangible. It made it feel like something that I could actually reach uh, just seeing how they operated and how they moved. And then I moved into my deputy CISO role uh, for a Fortune 200 architecture engineering firm. And I got to really do everything from strategy to architecture to governance, but I got to see it to completion. As a consultant, a lot of the time, you come in with all these ideas, you identify all the problems, you even set out a roadmap, but most likely that organization is carrying it out themselves. A lot of the time what you put together ends up on a, on a shelf somewhere. So I wanted to actually see some things to completion and, and that was fun. And before I took the CISO role there, um, I ended up getting a call from Epic and they had just had a pretty uh, nasty ransomware attack. They wanted me to come in, transform the organization. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That is really cool. I have 1 million follow-up questions. Um, <laughs> the first one, you know, you were at RSA doing professional services for Archer and for NetWitness, the Derbyshires and the Uran families 
I happen to be just like huge fans of them. Um, and you touched on something that I think is fascinating, which is these are technologies and to get them to be sticky, they needed professional services. Um, I am gonna just glance for fun at, oh my gosh, this is so fun. So uh, at the same time as you were at RSA, I was at Symantec and I was doing global product management. Um, and at that point in time, Symantec had for the most part eliminated their professional services division. And we were partnering with professional services, you know, partners, vendors uh, to do that sort of thing. And the product that I was working on like really needed a lot of professional services. And so this to me, I think is fascinating, right? Because you can look at any sort of business initiative, business process and say, oh, there's like people and process and technology components to it. Um, and I just, I really had this experience where in my case, one of the things that I was directly responsible for was uh, responding to like really big deal escalations. Like if we had a super big deal client that was paying us millions of dollars a year and they wanted to stop using our product, I would like fly over and talk to them. Um, and nine out of 10 times, it turned out that the problem was not actually with the technology. It had everything to do with people in process. And nine out of 10 times, the best solution was if we got really great professional services. So I'd love to hear what you think about professional services, cybersecurity talent, the role of people in process. Um, it's a very big and open-ended question. Yeah, I don't even know where to start with this one. So people process and technology is what people always talk about. I put them in order. It's it's the people first, the process, and then the technology. And part of professional services is to develop the people that you're going to leave the product with. If they are not versed and they are not proficient in the technology, the technology is not going to be successful. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is you have to decide, are we going to build a process that the technology will align with or will the technology align with an existing process a lot of the time that existing process doesn't exist and the conversations that need to be had have nothing to do with technology you're talking to hr you're talking to sales you're talking to operations it and so forth and it's really around how do you do XYZ? How are you managing risk? How do you handle exceptions? You know, how do you prefer uh, to escalate things? That has nothing to do with the technology that's going to facilitate that process. And oftentimes there's a lot of automation involved. And if you automate a bad process, that's worse than not even putting the automation in at all. So it's, it's important that before any technology ever goes in, you understand the problem that that technology is trying to solve you solve that problem as much as possible on paper, and then you bring the technology in to accelerate whatever it may be. Bravo. I am like literally clapping because that describes an experience that I have had time and time again throughout my career when people are like, oh, automation is a solution to everything. Let's automate this broken process. And then you just end up with like, more broken stuff. Um, I am just really super happy to hear that. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I think that is excellent advice. Um, 
So then the other thing I really want to ask you, another thing, there are many things I would love to ask you, but another thing I would love to ask you about is you mentioned that they told you about the job at Epic and they had just had this like ransomware attack. And ransom is like this big, bad, scary thing, even though it's largely preventable, but we can talk about that part in a moment. Um, I'm curious to know, like for a company that builds stuff for lawyers, I actually feel like there's all this legal stuff around what you can and cannot do with regards to ransomware. So I'm just curious to know, like, what are your thoughts on ransomware? And in particular, is it different when the work that you do, you're like surrounded by attorneys? I'm so curious about this. So to your point, ransomware is just another form of malware with a different objective. And the way that you mitigate manage ransomware is the way you mitigate and manage all the other threats that are out there. Um, there is this fallacy that if you have backups, you can avoid the pain of ransomware. Um, number one, backups are nothing if you don't have compute to recover it too, which a lot of organizations don't. Um, Whoa, good and, point. And two, uh, the bad actors are now stealing your data before they encrypt your data. So you can recover and then they're still going to ransom a, a notification to the GDPR organization or they're gonna ransom a notification to your top five clients or, or whatever it may be. And organizations still find themselves paying. Now, when it comes to uh, the the legal, uh, I guess angle, I don't know that it's that it's much different, to 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 be honest, because you're talking from a legal perspective, it's privacy at the most, you know, for the most part, and whether you are working for a legal organization or you're working for any other organization, if you have privacy regulators and you have expectations to align with certain privacy uh, frameworks you're going to feel the pain the same way. But fortunately, today, it's really about if the data was exfiltrated, if it's ransomed, and it's just encrypted, you don't really see too many regulators come knocking. But if that data is stolen, that's when people have have a much worse day. Yeah. Wow. Super interesting. The part about you could have working backups, but if you don't have enough compute, then it sort of doesn't matter. I feel like that's a point that that might not get brought up often enough. I feel like that's something that we don't hear that much about, but is totally, it just is, right? It is. Well, if you're if you're not involved in the DR process, I, I'm over resiliency and crisis management um, here at Epic, you don't think about, okay, backups and testing typically is not for your entire environment. Typically it's okay, can we recover these servers? Can we recover AD? Can we recover HR servers? But you rarely see a company test recovering 70% of their environment. So the conversation is, okay, if we have a, you know, oh crap, worst case scenario, how do we make sure that these backups that have a, you know, really good, uh, you know, RPO, how do we make sure that the recovery time objective is where it needs to be as well? And that's a conversation that it's it's harder to have because now you're asking about either A, having cloud infrastructure that some companies, some of your customers may not be okay with, or B, having hardware sitting that you may never use. Mm, 
Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I feel like people in cybersecurity, they're always talking about stuff changing and how difficult it is. Do you feel like stuff changes? Do you feel like it changes really fast and that's hard? Or do you feel like in some ways, like stuff hasn't changed at all? Um, in, in many ways, the attacks have stayed the same. The attack vectors and the threat landscape has, has expanded. There are more attackers mm -hmm. that are out there. Your, your data is now in a different place. It's not just inside of your data center. Um, users are no longer coming into you know, your four walls. So there's change when it comes to that, but they're still using email as the number one vector. So no matter what all those things change, email is still the number one way that they're getting in. The number two way is still coming in through applications, right? So all those things that I named, none of those are really, you know, major changes when it comes to the two top type of attacks. Uh, that being said, I think our industry is always evolving because the business is evolving. As the business changes how it operates, the technology follows and then the cybersecurity comes along for the ride. So yeah, there's going to be change and it's going to continue to change. There are technologies that are on the horizon that will eventually become our problem. People talk about IoT all the time. IoT is not getting a lot of love from organizations because there haven't been any major um, attacks that are publicized about IoT. Right now, it's just you know using your IoT as part of a botnet or something like that, and people just accept that risk. But yeah. when you're when your television starts attacking your Active Directory, people start focusing on IoT, right? It's just one of those things where, yeah, as long as new technologies are introduced, there's going to be a new novel way to break in and a new way that we need to protect. You know, I feel like IoT was really hot like five years ago, and then it sort of like faded. Like, I feel like in 2015 or something, there were some folks who like, hacked into a jeep while it was driving on the highway like i feel like that's a big deal and then you would hear about oh you know this this heart pace monitor thing got attacked and like but then it it, it has sort of like faded which to me is is interesting and i wonder if if it's just like anything else in the media like maybe it's not quite as sensational but i think there's a difference between instances of bad stuff occurring and how much we talk about it or how much we focus on it. I just don't know. Um, I think we talk about things years before they become a really big problem. Supply chain, it's a perfect example. ISO put supply chain on the very insta first instantiation of ISO 27,000. Mm. Not until the last two years have we really started talking about the supply chain. Target got popped through their supply chain, but it's like, oh, that was just a one-off scenario. It wasn't really bad. It was just Target. And now you can't really have very many security conversations without supply chain coming up. It's because the attackers are, are leveraging it more. If attackers start to leverage IoT more, then we're going to focus on it more. I remember a day when people said you couldn't get hacked on a MacBook, mm -hmm. right? But the reality is, yeah. is the attackers weren't attacking MacBooks because the majority of people had windows. Yep. It's it's this it's the same thing. And now we have all types of Mac protections and so forth. It's just a matter of wherever the attackers are spending their time, we have to 
uh, invest in on their, our defenses. Yeah, well said, and I really like your perspective. Um, so question on behalf of our listeners, what advice do you have for folks in terms of keeping up with the latest trends and adjusting and adapting to a changing technology landscape? Um, keeping up with the latest trends, subscribe to newsletters, follow certain people on you know, Twitter or LinkedIn that are constantly talking about the latest and greatest things that are out there. Um, I, that's how I keep up with what's happening. And I subscribe to a podcast that gives me the daily, daily cyber headlines. Um, when it comes to uh, adapting, I think we have to get, get rid of any type of naive notions that something may not occur, right? So we, we're already talking about quantum encryption. And if there's quantum encryption, there's quantum decryption. <laughs> Some people go, oh, that's just so far out, it'll never happen but it will eventually, right? So when in your career will it happen? That's a conversation uh, to be had. Cloud security was the thing back when I was at Lockheed, they were saying you have to put one application in the cloud. This was almost 10 years ago, if not longer. And now here it is, you know, in, in, the, main, in the mainstream. It's, it's just a matter of really seeing where industry is going and do your best to, to stay ahead of it or at the very least to not have to play catch up. Yeah, cool. Uh, Jarek, I can't believe that we are so close to the end of our conversation for today. I hope to have many conversations with you. Um, I'm just enjoying this so much. I wonder, so you've done all sorts of cool things throughout your career. What's next for you? Um, you know, I'm not really goal oriented, I'm more growth oriented. Uh, so what opportunities are there out there for me to develop and grow into just a better leader, person, husband, father, all of those things. I think the next thing for me would be to potentially volunteer on, on some boards for some nonprofits, uh, potentially hopefully have a board of director opportunity. I'm serving on a few advisory boards, uh, but the, the ultimate goal is to kind of get a, a BOD seat I don't see myself doing anything but cyber. That's just that's just in my blood. It's my calling. Um, but hopefully, you know, this time next year, 100, 200, 300 people will be in the industry and partially because of some of the advice or mentorship that I've given them. Cool. I love that. I just, I hear sort of mission-driven and impact-driven uh, all over uh, what you've shared with us today. And and what do you think, final question, uh, what do you think is next for the industry? Um, I'm seeing it more and more, but the, the gatekeepers are getting kind of called to the hot seat. We, we are going to eventually lower the barrier for entry. If we don't, we will lose the cyber war, the cold war, whatever you want to call it, that we're in. Because we have so many openings and all of our openings are for mid-level people, but we won't have mid-level people three years from now, five years from now, if we don't let people in today with no experience. So yeah. I think eventually it has to happen. I yell it from a rooftop if I could, um, but we need more internships. We need more people to give people a chance because quite frankly, everybody in IT started their first IT job with zero experience. Yes. We need to let the next generation have that same experience as well. 
Awesome. I would not be here, uh, and I expect you would not be here uh, if not for someone at various stages in our career giving us chances to do so. Precisely. Derek, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing uh, your thoughts with us today on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.